You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. The body of John Hume will be brought to St Eugene's Cathedral in Derry from his home in Maville in County Donegal later today, ahead of his funeral tomorrow. His family has asked mourners to refrain from lining the streets of Derry and have instead asked people to light a candle for peace at their homes at nine o'clock tonight because of the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. His funeral will be broadcast live on RTE television. In different times, the death of a statesman, an internationally renowned peacemaker and the man credited with pulling Derry out of poverty and single-mindedly dragging Ireland to peace would have filled his native city with well-wishers and friends from across the island and more. Many who would like to, and in their tributes over the last 24 hours have, thanked the 83-year-old for saving lives from a conflict that at its darkest in the 1970s, 80s and 90s looked like it would never end. The Good Friday Agreement of 1998, which brought an end, was born of Hume's analysis and aided by his long years of talks with Republicans during the worst of the violence. In September 1994, on the steps of government buildings, a few days after the provisional IRA's announcement of a ceasefire, John Hume appeared with Gerry Adams and then Taoiseach Albert Reynolds. What we're trying to do here, in the first instance, is to sustain a peace process that has been started by a momentous and historic decision of last Wednesday night. The statement is calling on everyone, and I would say to the British government and to all the parties in the North as well, calling on everyone to use all their energies to produce agreement. And as we reiterate, the process in which we're engaged offers no threat to any section of our people. And in particular, could I say to the Unionist people of the North, as the statement says, we cannot solve this problem without you. We need your agreement too. John Hume and Albert Reynolds in 1994. Earlier I spoke with Senator George Mitchell, who paid tribute to John Hume, a man he met on the road to peace in Ireland, who was also to become a personal friend. John was a great man, uh, one of the great heroes in Irish history, an advocate for peace, an architect of peace. I think he was rightly recognised as a fearless leader who devoted his life to the cause of peace in Northern Ireland. But he was very well known in the U.S. as well as throughout Europe because he was a leader for peace through peaceful means. John opposed violence from any side or any source. He wanted to bring about a Northern Ireland that was safe and a place of prosperity for both nationalists and unionists. And he was widely respected. And I myself, who worked closely with him over many years, came to admire him greatly and feel as though I've lost a dear friend. What did you know of him, or did you know of him, before you worked with him? Well, I'd heard of him, of course. He spent a lot of time in the United States uh, talking with political leaders, others uh, before he met me. I was greatly impressed with him. He had a lot of courage. You will recall, of course, how difficult those times were. It's hard to put oneself back in an era in which there was so much violence, so much fear, so much hostility, so much hatred, and John was a towering figure. One of the reasons I think he will go down in history, and one of the reasons I think he won the Nobel Peace Prize along with David Trimble, is that John conceived the architecture of the talks that made it possible for the two sides to sit down and advance on all issues. 
it was what were called three strands, three separate sets of discussions occurring simultaneously. One dealt with the issues within Northern Ireland themselves between nationalists and unionists. The other dealt within Ireland itself between the North and the South. And the third dealt with the relationship between the country of Ireland and the country of the United Kingdom. And it was weaving these three together, although in separate strands, as they were called in the discussions, that enabled the parties to make progress on all of them simultaneously and to bring them to a successful conclusion at the end. Was it John Hume's template, or architecture as you put it, that you were all working off? That's right. John was a leader in that respect. He, of course, before that, was the leader in forging a unified nationalist position in discussions with Sinn Féin and with the Irish government, which was then headed by the uh, Taoiseach Albert Reynolds, who was succeeded by John Bruton and then Bertie Ahern, all of whom were totally committed to the cause. John was a visionary. He could look into the future and see the circumstances under which this could be brought to a successful conclusion, which was very hard to do given the tremendous amount of violence and hostility and fear that existed at the time. During the talks, how did he deal with the length of time that it took others to catch up with his belief or his analysis? John was a forceful leader. Uh, he had no reluctance to express impatience or disagreement. I counted him a very good friend, but he disagreed with me on several decisions I made, and he would let me know it directly, face-to-face. -face. He didn't carry grudges. He wanted to move on, and so we did throughout the entire process. He was aided uh, tremendously by other great leaders in several parties within his own party, Seamus Mallon, who himself just recently passed away, and a number of other leaders uh, were very strong and effective negotiators, but it was John Hume's vision, John Hume's strength, and what I would call his reputation, in which he was so widely admired, uh, that it sustained us through a very tough process. I heard one person close to him say that during intractable periods, he could walk into a room, say a couple of sentences, and it would be like a light going on for those involved. W was that your experience? That did happen on occasion. He also was a uh, guy who I experienced would sometimes in the evening walk into the room and break into song and inspire people. I don't know how many times I heard John... Uh, sing the song, The Town We Know So Well, and others. He had a way of being able to banish the bad feelings that existed to bring a smile to your face and to inspire you. And it was the combination of all of these effects of his personality that made him such a great leader. Did he understand unionism, do you think? I think he did. He was a strong advocate for a unified Northern Ireland for all people. He said repeatedly, this is not just about the nationalists. This is about the unionists as well. And in order to live peacefully and to achieve prosperity, we need everyone to be working together. And I think that was part of his appeal 
throughout all of the society and, of course, made him a worldwide well-known figure. Did you keep in touch with John Hume after the agreement? And, and when did you, did you last see him or talk to him? Oh, yes, I saw John many times after the agreement. Uh, for 10 years after the agreement, I served as Chancellor of Queen's University, Belfast. Yes. And so I returned often and saw John probably almost every time I went back. And then in recent years, I've seen him several times in Dublin, in Northern Ireland. Uh, of course, as you know, in recent years, John has not been fully comprehending all that has been going on around him. He began to be forgetful. Uh, but he still was his charming and warm personal self in all the times I've seen him. And I think the last time I saw him was about a year ago uh, in Northern Ireland. That's Senator George Mitchell speaking to us earlier. Well, earlier we heard John Hume expressing his anger at conditions in Derry in 1969. Moving on a quarter of a century to the end of November 1995, the then US President Bill Clinton visited the city. On that day, John Hume had a message of hope. Our links with America are powerful and strong, but today they are even more powerful because this is the most historic day in the history of this city when President and Mrs. Clinton arrive here to strengthen and develop those links. Because today, those links, we want them to develop strongly. We already have them developing with the presence in our city of companies like DuPont, Fruit of the Loom, Seagate, United Technologies, and this very week, Stream International. Because President Clinton has committed himself to helping us economically and giving hope to our young people. And he has appointed Senator Mitchell as his special economic envoy. And as we know, the economic problems that we have unite all sections of our people. And as all sections of our people work together to build our country rather than destroy it, with the full and positive support of President Clinton, then we will build a new land. And as we move towards the next century, which is only five years away, let it be our dream. And it's a dream that we will achieve with the powerful assistance of the President and his administration and the senators and congressmen who are here today. That dream is that we will have a land in the next century where for the first time in our history, there will be no killing in our streets and no emigration of our young people to other lands. Thank you, Mr. President. John Hume speaking in November 1995. Well, part of his success lay with his ability to mobilise American politicians, in particular the Clinton White House, in support of the peace process. One of those who helped him was publisher Neil O'Dowd, and he's been telling me about how he came to know John Hume. I knew him because John became a huge figure in Irish America. Uh, when he first came on the political scene, he made it a point of coming to the United States and getting to know people. And he became an extremely powerful figure with access to senators, particularly the Kennedy family, congressmen, and eventually presidents. And uh, if there was one night I remember in particular, it was St. Patrick's Night, 1995, a huge Irish party at the White House and John Hume. Uh, two things that happened in 1994. Jerry Adams had received a visa to come to the United States 
And John Hume had to make a very difficult personal call in approving the issuance of that visa and agreeing with it because he must have known that he would concede some of his own political power. But then later that year was the IRA ceasefire. And at the White House that night, I remember John saying something along the lines that it had all been worth it and eventually him and Jerry Adams, who had been quite bad enemies for many years, standing up together at the end of the night with Bill Clinton conducting, singing the town I love so well. So I think it was John at his happiest moment that I saw him and uh, it was a glorious moment for him because he had faced ferocious opposition for the Hume Adams uh, initiative and he was bludgeoned and beaten and beat up in the press by many, many journalists, particularly in the Sunday Independent. And that affected him very deeply. And uh, as the New York Times remarks in his obituary this morning, he was admitted to hospital for what he called his nerves on several occasions. But he held his nerve when it mattered most, and he stuck with Hume Adams, even through the worst of the violence in the 90s and in the 80s. And they emerged triumphant. That was the blueprint, really, for the Good Friday Agreement. His tenacity was extraordinary because there were many occasions on which he could have given up and he didn't. And he also had an unusual clarity of thought, as in he didn't get waylaid, he didn't get distracted. No, he was a school teacher and he taught and he was constantly taught teaching and he was you know sort of uh, some people said he made the same speech many times well he said that's what a school teacher does until somebody gets the knowledge of what he's trying to impart and his lesson registered in america i mean it was extraordinary because john would travel on his own he he was a lone wolf he didn't have staff he didn't have people with him fellow colleagues he obviously did not have the greatest relationship with seamus man who disagreed with the hume adams initiative so it was just John on his own arriving uh, off off the plane, getting his way to Washington. How crucial was he in changing the view of a certain part of Irish America who might have, up until that point, supported the IRA? Well, he was very influential with the Kennedy family, extremely influential. Early on in the conflict, Ted Kennedy was quite militant in his views and that was very widely reflected because of issues like Bloody Sunday and major atrocities but John came along with a very different formula and he succeeded in changing their minds that physical force was not the way to go but in fairness to him when the time came he made the introductions to the Kennedys uh, for Jerry Adams and other members of Sinn Féin and it became it all coalesced together in the end it was Irish America John Hume, the Irish government, uh, who who helped make the, the SDLP, helped make the peace process work. And John was a great convener in the end of the forces who were pushing for a settlement uh, that would be fair to all sides, which eventually became the Good Friday Agreement. And as you say, he supported moves to get that US visa for Gerry Adams, even though you could argue that at one level it wasn't really in his own best interests. It wasn't in his own best interest, and that was what was... The the visa battle was put together by a group of Irish-Americans who were not particularly close to John Hume, they were close to Gerry Adams. So it would have been very, very easy for John Hume to say when the White House asked, John, do you want Gerry Adams to come to America? Uh, it would have been very easy for John to say no, because he was obviously going to concede some of his own power, but he didn't. He said yes. 
And without that visit, and Jerry Adams has often said this, it was one of the critical elements in bringing about the IRA ceasefire in August of that year. How should he be remembered, do you think? As a great man, um, as the greatest Irishman, perhaps, uh, of, of my lifetime, um, of one of the greatest Europeans, a man who took what seemed impossible and hopeless and turned it into hope. And I think he was extraordinary in that this single figure was able to turn presidents, senators, congressmen to his, his, to his knees and to his wants and attuned them to what Ireland needed. And most of all, he, he, he was, he, he could be a great communicator. I mean, I, I saw him in some situations where he was just brilliant in terms of pursuing his particular ideal at that time. And he, he woke us all up to the notion of an agreed Ireland as against uh, 26 County Ireland, a disunited Ireland, a united Ireland. His agreed Ireland was about people, not territory. And that was Neil O'Dowd speaking earlier from the United States. We're going to uh, return to our reporter, Angus Cox, who's also in Derry. Thank you, Rachel. Welcome back to Derry, where John Hume and his political achievements are being remembered this morning in the city. He loved our broadcast position on the city walls, overlooks the bogside area of Derry, where much of his history unfolded. Free Derry Corner, St Eugene's Cathedral, as Father Farron referenced, is also below us, the Brandywell. And we have a great view of John Hume's home on West End Terrace. To assess his legacy in more detail, I'm joined by Pat McCart, former editor of the Derry Journal, who knew John Hume quite well. We'll be speaking with Pat shortly, but first we'll hear more from the people who knew and campaigned alongside John Hume for years, including Ivan McIver whose kitchen table was political HQ for many of Hume's election campaigns. My parents were very friendly with John and Pat when we were young children back in the late 60s, early 70s. And my mother subsequently became an early member of the SDLP in the early 70s, subsequently became John's election agent for over 30 years. She worked with John in the general elections, local elections, and obviously the European elections. During that period, it would have been the mid-70s right through to the mid-90s. My family home and my kitchen in particular became very much a part of those elections. And there was plenty of times you could find yourself having your breakfast, your dinner or your tea with John. Working with John in those times wasn't easy because he could have been in America, he could have been in Europe or he could have been in London. So there was always the question, where is John? And then it would be ring Pat, find out. Grania McCafferty, retired head teacher. I would have seen John through the, the civil rights and seen the kind of the stature of the man and his capacity to engage with people. And I'm not talking about engaging with the, the great and the good and the Bill Clintons, but to engage with the ordinary people of the city. I've watched him, meet people meeting him on the street, people saluting him. He was a very much loved son of this city. When John won the Nobel Prize, large sums of money, what did John do? He gave that money all away. He divided the money between the Salvation Army and St Vincent de Paul. Now, I thought that was a kind of a remarkable thing to do. And other money that he won at a later stage, the Gandhi money, I think it was, he gave that to the Foyle Hospice. Derry loved John because John loved Derry. He was so driven by the need for peace and I was aware of that from the early stages of the civil rights movement where the emphasis very much was, you know, when you were out marching or whatever, was on not causing offence and not retaliating. You you could trust John. He was kind of reliable, dependable, also a wonderful speaker. 
Uh, you could have listened to John all night and it wasn't waffle. It wasn't waffle indeed. Some more memories there of John Human from, from the people who knew and worked with him. I'm joined now, as I said, by Pat McCart, former editor of the Derry Journal, which has to be said features some lovely pictures throughout John Hume's political life featured in, in the journal this morning. Um, Pat, thanks for joining us. Your career mirrored John Hume's in, in a funny sense. Tell us about that. Well, I became editor around a, not too long after he became leader of the SDLP and I retired uh, not too long after uh, he hung up his boots. Now, I'd say his career was slightly more stellar than mine, but we sort of did mirror each other. And as we were chatting earlier, you were explaining to me, John Hume, he was different from what came before. He wasn't this traditional old-style nationalist. No, Eddie McIntyre was the leader of nationalism and it was a straightforward... Uh, it's confrontation between unionism and nationalism, which nationalism always lost because the unionists were in such a majority. But Hume came along and he intellectualised it and he had a strategy. And what the nationalist people loved was he was seen as a winner. He exposed unionism, he exposed the the, the corruption and the, the sectarianism and the discrimination. And when he went on debates, he was so calm and cool that they loved the fact that he uh, was doing it in such a sort of, I don't know if intellectual is the right way, but in an intelligent way. And to uh, paraphrase uh, Rudyard Kipling, John Hume, he could walk with kings yet not lose the common touch. And that was evident in how he carried himself around Derry. John used to stroll around Derry. Uh, like the Brandywalls over there, he was president of the club for I think about more than 20 years. He would walk around and he would stop and chat to anybody and everybody. Uh, he, he never really got above himself. He was as happy talking to a fisherman down in Greencastle or somebody on the bog side as he was talking to Bill Clinton. And while he was such a kind and generous man, as we've been hearing in, in those clips, for example, where he donated a lot of the money from his Nobel Prize success, he could also be tough when he had to be. Uh, speaking personally, I, I had first-hand experience of that. John was nobody's fool. Uh, now, I wouldn't say John was ruthless, that, that wouldn't be, that'd be totally unfair, but he was tough when John uh, fell out with you, he seriously let you know, and I had a couple of quite serious run-ins in with him, so, no, <laughs> the, the, he could be prickly, I think John Major described him as prickly, and I, the guy found that as well, but having said that, there was another side to him too that was extremely generous, so uh, you have to, no, nobody's perfect, except Allah, apparently. <laughs> and from working with him for such an extensive period, um, covering many of his key successes. What will your lasting memories of John Hume be? No, there's a very stupid, simple thing. On the last day of my, uh, when I was retiring, John arrived in the office and I, I could see he was hiding something. When he, when he won the Nobel Prize, he was presented with a barrel of whiskey. So John came down to the office with a bottle of whiskey that I have still got and I thought it was the nicest thing he could have done. It was very personal and it means a lot. No, everybody can talk about the Nobel Prize and the leader of the SDLP, but for me that's a nice personal memory. And we know that people aren't being encouraged to come out to remember John onto the streets this evening. They've been encouraged to light candles from their homes. In the coming, in the, in the near future, in the t near time ahead, how, how do you think he will be remembered here in Derry? He, I always say John didn't need a car or he didn't need a boat. John walked on water uh, in Derry. He, he was held in such high respect and esteem. John, John Hume was, was an absolute colossus. John was a winner. You know, uh, somebody said earlier on, Daniel O'Connell didn't achieve what he set out to achieve. John achieved what he set out. He, he got an end to violence. Uh, he succeeded very, very well. And he, he, he came up with the roadmap to uh, get the peace process in Ireland. And uh, we're sitting here today looking at a city at peace.
And uh, as you can probably hear behind us, the street cleaners, uh, life goes on <laughs> here in Derry. Uh, Pat McCart, former editor of the Derry Journal, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts of, of John Hume this morning. And b- before we leave you here from Derry this morning, we've, we've heard from the people who worked with and knew John Hume over the years. But what about the younger generation in the city? I spoke with some of them about John Hume and what his achievements mean to them. He did some good things for the rights of Catholics. Uh, it's a civil, arch, mar- civil rights marches and everything. I, I spent a good few months of my history doing it. I learned just about him and the SDLPA. The importance for what John has done for us is bringing peace to us now. Would your generation know a lot about John here? Not really. Uh, no, no, my dad, my dad would. My name is Jaden Nixon. I am 12 years old. John Hume was an important man in Northern Ireland. He helped solve the sectarian conflict that was happening and he helped breach the visions. And he's a very important man and we're all here to honour his death. You seem to know quite a lot about him. How did you find out about him? Whenever I grow up, I want to be a member of DSDLP. I want to be an MP for them. So I'm just researching like lots of political stuff. So I'm fascinated by John Hume. He's a good man. So you want to follow in his footsteps? Yeah. That's 12-year-old Jaden Nixon, a young man with a lot of knowledge and insight. We started the programme with the voice of John Hume describing his home city of Derry for RT's Seven Days programme in 1969, a city beset by poverty and discrimination and about to be engulfed by decades of violent conflict. The Derry I worked and lived in nearly 20 years ago was very different, and today, as Angus described, almost unrecognisable from the one in which John Hume set up Ireland's first credit union and welcomed US presidents and civil rights leaders to after helping to an end to conflict. You can see that 1969 film and more from Jaden Nixon on our Twitter, Facebook and Instagram accounts. It's two minutes to nine. The ongoing coronavirus restrictions keeping people apart will create a very different send-off for John Hume later today. Instead of a huge gathering in his native Derry to mark the passing of a statesman, peacemaker, persuader and much-loved son of the city, Candles were lit in homes across the country last night at the request of his family. And the many memories and stories which would have been shared in person together in a city accustomed to filling the streets are being broadcast, put to print and shared at home. Our northern editor Tommy Gorman is in Derry ahead of John Hume's funeral at St Eugene's Cathedral later this morning. Morning Tommy, what's going to happen today? Well, the funeral mass is at half past 11 in St. Eugene's Cathedral, and you're so right that John Hume was the person who believed in having everybody inside the tent. Uh, and I suppose in, as a final tribute to him, uh, people are, are being asked to stay apart um, in recognition of the virus that's out there. You heard the Minister for Health there talking about how vicious uh, the virus is. And I think it was in recognition of that that you saw the Hume family members arriving with their masks last night uh, as John Hume's body was brought to the cathedral. Uh, I think as well, Gavin, you have to take into account what happened in Belfast last month during the funeral of Bobby Story uh, and the added, I suppose, sadness that was brought to his family by the controversy that followed. Bobby Story himself would not have liked to see his family or his party involved in such controversy. And it's because of that uh, kind of threat that's still out there that the Humes have asked people to stay away. So as a result, you'll have no more than 100 or 120 people in a cathedral that would be packed beyond overflowing in normal circumstances. So who's going to be there, who's not going to be there? 
Well, who's going to be there? Uh, from You'll have the President, Michael D. Higgins, uh, travelling from Dublin. The Taoiseach is here. Uh, the Taunished and uh, Fine Gael leader, Leo Varadkar, would be here, but he's uh, observing that social distance request. Uh, the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Simon Coveney, is travelling, I suppose, Given the relationship between the Department of Foreign Affairs over the years, John Hume uh, was welcomed in so many embassies throughout the world. He had such a, a strong relationship with the Department of Foreign Affairs. I think that's been recognised. The leaders of uh, the Northern Ireland Executive First Minister Arlene Foster, uh, Deputy First Minister Michelle O'Neill will be here. Jim Nicholson is going to represent the Ulster Unionist Party. Yes, David Trimble was such a great friend of John Hume, but Jim Nicholson worked as a member of the European Parliament with him, cooperated with him on so many levels uh, over the years. So he's representing the Ulster Unionist Party. Naomi Long from the Alliance Party. Brandon Lewis, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, will represent the British government. Boris Johnson had made it known that he would be willing to travel here and would wish to travel here, but he's respecting the requests of the family. Uh, he actually lit a candle and placed it on the steps of Downing Street last night, as happened in many parts of the island, in Donegal, as the body was being brought from near Green Castle. Uh, there were people out with candles, there were candles in homes, the same in Derry City. Uh, Bill Clinton would be here. Uh, but he's not travelling. Uh, and I understand that there will be a number of messages read out towards the end of the ceremony. Uh, very, very sadly, one of John Hume's, he has two sons, John Jr. and John, three daughters. And one of his sons, Aidan, is based in Boston. And he's remaining in the United States, observing the wish not to travel by plane. Uh, so that'll be quite sad for the family. And I, I was just watching uh, Pat Hume as she arrived last night. He just became so used to seeing her alongside John as his wife and in more recent years as his carer and I thought it was just extremely sad to see her walk up the church on her own uh, they used to go to Mass in uh, St. Eugene's uh, together uh, every day uh, for a lot of the time John Hume and Pat Hume uh, in more recent years uh, so she will be there uh, with her four children four of her five children and with their grandchildren and other members of the family Half past eight, I'll get the news headlines shortly it's a very Unique funeral, like all funerals have been over the last few months, Tommy, and people being robbed of that chance to reminisce together, but plenty of stories being shared across Derry and across Ireland over the last uh, 48 hours or so. Uh, you're, you're right about it, it being a, a very, very historic occasion. In many respects, uh, this is the end of an era for the SDLP. Um, when you think of it, Seamus Mallon, John Hume's uh, partner uh, in politics for so long. Uh, there were a double act. Seamus, was, uh, his funeral took place in January of this year. And you think of people today uh, who are still alive, like Austin Curry, who's down there in Kildare. Uh, Ivan Cooper is gone. Breed Rogers is still around. Uh, Alistair MacDonald is still around. And I suppose it was fortunate uh, for those who are in the autumn and the winter of their lives that in recent times they saw a resurgence of sorts in the SDLP uh, with the likes of their current leader, Colm Eastwood, winning a Westminster seat with Claire Hanna doing the same in Belfast. But uh, first and last, 
John Hume was a man of the people, a person of Derry, and no town likes to show its respect more than Derry. They take somebody to their hearts. And there is that special added poignant factor that this is that the final tribute to John Hume today is to be is to stay away from the funeral that so many people would wish to attend, Gavin. Tommy Gorman in Derry, thank you. And the funeral mass which begins at half past 11 this morning will be broadcast on RTE1 television and on RTE News Now and streamed on the RTE News website. And finally to the funeral later this morning of John Hume and a tribute penned by his friend Derry broadcaster Paul McFadden. John Hume's cruel illness meant that this political colossus would have struggled to recall the scale of his ambition or the magnitude of his achievements, but posterity will not forget them. News is fleeting, but history endures. When he first became politically active back in the 1960s, power sharing in Northern Ireland was unimaginable. Now it's an essential element of any settlement. John Hume did that. Here he is singing Danny Boy on the Late Late Show and also addressing the EU Parliament after winning the Nobel Peace Prize in 1998. Danny boy, the pipes, the pipes are calling. Let us not forget that European Union is the best example, as we have learned, in the history of the world of conflict resolution. And the philosophy that created European Union and the peace of Europe is the philosophy, if you study it, that is at the heart of our agreement. Respect for difference and for diversity. The creation of institutions which respect that diversity, but which allow all sections to work together in their common interests. Economics. Spill their sweat, not their blood. And by doing that, begin the real healing process of breaking down the barriers of centuries and the new society evolves. That is the philosophy of European Union and it's the philosophy of real peace. And might I add, that is the philosophy that we should be sending to areas of conflict in the world. We should not be sending armies, we should be sending a philosophy. And given the philosophy that we have in this building, it's a philosophy that will resolve conflict everywhere. And I shall sleep in peace until you come to me. To Lebanon now, where a rescue operation is continuing in the capital, Beirut, after an explosion yesterday that left at least 100 people dead and almost 4,000 injured. The blast happened at a port warehouse storing highly explosive material. Almost 3,000 tonnes of ammonium nitrate used in fertilisers and bombs had been stored for six years at the port without safety measures. The sound of the blast, which was heard for kilometres, was captured by locals taking videos of the fire at the port.
Luna Safwa, freelance journalist based in Beirut, is on the line. Luna, many will have seen the video footage, the very dramatic pictures of the, the both the blast and the aftermath. Talk to me about your own experience of, of the blast. Well, I can say that in all my years living in Lebanon and witnessing the uh, different kind of wars, including the 2006 Israeli war and different explosions throughout 2005 till 2008 in Beirut, where we made it alive out of different ones, this has been by far the most horrifying experience, not only for me, but also for different Lebanese. Um, I don't live in uh, in the capital i live around five kilometers away right next to the presidential palace which is supposed to be a mountain area and i could see shattered glass even here everywhere our doors at home were broken wide open glass was everywhere and our own experience is that once we realized that there was a first explosion and we tried to dock to protect ourselves we flew over the room when our doors were wide open because of the intensity of the explosion and it was as if this happened right down the street even though it was five kilometers away. The numbers are staggering, at least 100 people dead, 4,000 injured. What kind of injuries were presenting at hospitals and what impact did that have on the health services there yesterday? Um, Well, the injuries are different. You have um, minimal injuries. Many of these were caused by the shattered glass because, uh, first of all, people thought that they were uh, shooting and covering a normal um, uh, breakout in the airport of a fire. And everyone was uh, standing next to the windows and were taking pictures of the smoke. Now, what no one anticipated was the bigger blast, the second blast that happened and that threw everyone off. So you have a lot of wounds that were caused by glass. You have wounds that were caused by people passing by through a place and something falling over them. And then you have the more serious ones of people who got stuck in their cars or were caught up very close by next to the uh, explosion site. We're still talking about hundreds of missing, to be honest. Some of us can't contact all of their friends even. The hospitals are... uh, have an influx of injuries up until now people are being sent to hospitals outside of the city and other cities to be treated is it clear at this stage how the fire and the subsequent blast happened it's very um, it's very unclear it's very blurry we are hearing definitive stories and it's uh, by the authorities that there was a uh, there were some sort of explosive or sensitive material and weapon that were stored in one of the warehouses in the uh, in the Beirut seaport however why these were stored there and what exactly caused this we are not sure yet. We are reading uh, confirmed reports about a fire that started all of this and that caused uh, the fire to be uh, to be spread wider all over the port premises and then the explosions. But up until now, there are no confirmed uh, stories and the authorities are launching an investigation as of today. And in few days, not more than five days, we should have an answer according to the Lebanese cabinet. And what are the government doing in response to this incident? Um, right now, the government is pleading for international help and for regional help, and this is something very crucial because Lebanon needs this right now. Our hospitals are already flooded with coronavirus infections, and we have a medical shortage and a shortage in hospital beds, and I've spoken about this many times before throughout the year. 
Right now, there's a call from the government for help from the international community. The government is trying to assess as soon as possible the damage that has been done and is trying to find temporary shelters for hundreds of families who lost their houses in, uh, in the capital. Okay, Luna Safwan, freelance journalist based in Beirut. Thank you for talking to us. It's nine minutes to nine. You're welcome back to Morning Ireland. Phase four of the reopening of the country has been delayed once again. Pubs won't reopen. The numbers at indoor and outdoor gatherings will not increase. The green list of countries has been reduced by five and restaurants will now have to have customers off their premises by 11pm. It's bad news for many, including the hospitality sector and those who had been planning weddings and sporting events. It will stay this way for the rest of the month, meaning it'll be September at the earliest before any of this changes. Last night, the acting chief medical officer, Dr Ronan Glynn, said the key message people must take from the delaying of phase four is that we all need to redouble our efforts in tackling COVID-19. No age group is immune from this virus and Neffet has recommended today that more is done to reach out and communicate with younger people. This is not about blame. We will all slip up on occasion. But the priority now must be on continuing to encourage each other to build on and sustain the great efforts that we have all made to date. We must not drop our guard, whether that's in our own homes, in our workplaces, or when we're out meeting our friends. This is the only way that we will break the chains of transmission and prevent further people from becoming infected. Earlier on this programme, Paul Moynihan, incoming president of the Vintners Federation of Ireland, said yesterday was D-Day for many publicans. I think it's been proven that the pubs have been open so far for, for five weeks now. I think it's been proven that there's been no cases associated with these pubs so far. So where is the evidence that says that we cannot, as an industry, go forward and keep this pandemic at bay? I think everything that was being asked of us as as an industry has been done and would be done. Listen, you're talking about people's livelihoods here. You're talking about, I think, you're talking about 30,000 jobs involved in this industry. You've got publicans, you've got their families, you've got the people that are working for us, you've got the, the, the people that are supplying us. I'm, I'm a pub in a small village here in Denard. In the same sentence yesterday, Michal Martin mentioned pubs and nightclubs. Now, if you took look at my pub and compare it and put it in the same sentence as a nightclub with maybe 500 people jammed into it is completely ludicrous. You cannot put them in the same sentence. So if my pub is a local pub, I probably know every single person that comes in here. We're all neighbours, we're all friends. We're trying our best to move forward as a nation in this. To, to keep me closed and the likes of all rural publicans closed is absolutely ridiculous. The Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, is here in studio. Stephen Donnelly, you could hear there the anger in Paul Moynihan's voice. Why not let them try And if there's a problem, pull the plug. Good morning, Sam. The focus is on keeping people in Ireland safe. The focus is on suppressing the virus. The focus is on getting the schools open and protecting our economy. And I hear Paul's frustration and anger, and I understand Paul's frustration and anger. What we're doing is we're following public health advice. My hope was that I'd be sitting here with you this morning saying that the pubs could reopen, that weddings could be bigger, that the sports clubs could have more people at them. That's what we all want. Unfortunately, the virus virus is spreading at a very fast rate around the world. So the 15 countries we had on the green list, uh, since we opened that list 14 days ago, 14 of the 15 countries have seen very significant increases. And indeed, we took five countries off the green list because of that. And unfortunately, we're seeing some of the same things happen here. 
So the five-day average of cases uh, had been less than 10, so less than 10 new cases a day. It's now more than 50 new cases a day. The 14-day cumulative cases per 100,000, this is one of the big measures that NEFET look at and the WHO look at, uh, we had dropped down to uh, 2.5 cases per 100,000 people. We're up to nearly 8, so from 2.5 up to 8. Two weeks ago, we had 120 new cases. Last week, we had 284 new cases. Uh, We have eight significant clusters around the country, four in factories, food processing factories, four in direct provision, and numerous smaller clusters. We also have uh, one in five new cases is community transmission. What that means is that the public health officials and the people who are infected don't know where that came from. Uh, It has been one in five steadily, but obviously it's one in five off a bigger number now. So we're seeing more community transmission and it's happening all over the country. And for all of those reasons, when I met the chief medical officer yesterday after he'd come from the NEFET meeting, the message was that NEFET was unanimous and unambiguously of the view that uh, things are very, very finely balanced and it would take very little for us to move from 50 to 60 new cases a day, which in and of itself is, is too high, to more than 100 new cases a day. And we've all lived through the consequences of that and people have sacrificed so much. There's so much on the line in terms of people's lives, people's health, the schools, the economy. Um, that we have to take a cautious approach. So what we decided yesterday as government was that as we have uh, continuously done, we would follow the public health advice and we would pause phase four, as well as the other things you mentioned around face coverings, uh, additional uh, issues, uh, additional measures at airports. Uh, We're going to have a new set of uh, supports for nursing homes. We're extending supports for at-risk groups and many more things. So, So that's why we did what we did. It's very disappointing for publicans. It's very disappointing for uh, sports clubs and many others, but we are doing it to keep the country safe. The publicans, the hoteliers, they all say there's no evidence that any of these increasing cases are linked to the businesses that are already opened. Could you have come up with some sort of guidelines or measures to allow them to reopen on some basis? I hope in time we can. So people have very fairly raised the question of could we do it by county? Could we do it by region? If, for example, we saw a sustained, very, very low level of uh, community transmission in different parts of the country, might we be able to do things on a regional basis? And that is something we are looking very closely at. The advice from NEFIT yesterday was because because the community transmission, this is the bit that really worries them, because that is happening all over the country and because in August, obviously, lots of us are travelling around the country, that now is not the time for that. Both you and the Taoiseach said yesterday that you couldn't guarantee that pubs would reopen this side of Christmas. If we can't do it in the summer months, is it likely we'll be able to do it in the winter? I certainly hope so. Uh, Like I say, three weeks ago, Uh, I would have hoped to be sitting down here and saying that the pubs were opening this coming Monday. It may be the case that you and I talk in three weeks' time and everything has stabilised and that is exactly what we can do. The Taoiseach was asked if he could give an absolute guarantee and when pressed he said he couldn't give an absolute guarantee but no one on earth can give an absolute guarantee about what's going to happen with this virus. It's vicious, it's highly infectious and to the point around evidence, what I would say is this, is... NEFIT is making its decisions or providing its advice rather based on evidence and the evidence shows that when countries open up the pubs, not the restaurants, when they open up the restaurants 
uh, the evidence shows that the number of new cases does not go up associated with the restaurants. Uh, the international evidence shows that when you open up the pubs, unfortunately, in spite of everybody's best efforts and intentions, the number of cases does go up. And Mike Ryan of the WHO spoke to this two days ago when he was asked exactly these questions. The other decision that's been met with disappointment is not to increase the numbers at outdoor gatherings. Um, we've heard that that was to discourage people from congregating before or after an event. But you've made provisions for places of worship that ha- to have more than 50 people indoors if they can space them out, section them off, stagger, they're coming and going. Why not do the same with a football stadium? So the fr- so football was for outdoors and uh, Neffet's position on this is that they actually don't see uh, much of an issue during the game because the GAA and various other sporting organisations have some large stadiums. Uh, their view is, of course, you could have more than 200 people uh, at an outdoor event properly spaced. Their concern is what happens before the match and after the match. So, for example, um, some of the clusters that we're looking at at the moment, uh, the belief is that some of the transmission may have been in the cars on the way to work, on the way from work. So the public health experts, their view is... The match itself is not a problem, but people congregate beforehand, people share cars, uh, people congregate afterwards, and that really is their concern. And I think, Sam, if you and I were sitting here and the number of cases was uh, consistently at less than 20 a day, which we had seen for some time, my sense is the public health officials would say we're in a stable place that's a, a low level of community transmission. Their concern is things are very, very finely balanced and they believe that it might take very little to tip this over into a situation where it begins to go out of control, which other countries are seeing, which we have seen here before and which we have to do everything we can to avoid. If the numbers are as worrying, as you say, and and, and in in particular the community transmission, um, what is the situation with schools reopening? Is there any threat to that at the moment? The schools are still on are, are, are still on course to be reopened, and indeed, one of the reasons that that this decision has been taken, one of the reasons, one of the many reasons, government is taking the public health advice is for exactly this reason. The government has a core focus on getting the schools open, really getting students back to back to school for their education, for their mental health, for their own development. There's an awful lot of concern that keeping students out of school for too long can cause can, can, can cause some very serious problems. So but if community transmission continues, mm-hmm. could that have to be relooked at? Look, this is a dynamic situation. Uh, as as we've seen from, from the advice we got yesterday and the government decisions yesterday, it's a dynamic situation in Ireland, it's a dynamic situation abroad, uh, and we we have to respond dynamically. But for, for now, certainly, uh, the full intention is that the schools uh, do fully reopen. You also announced yesterday that face coverings in shops and shopping centres are to be mandatory from August 10th. Who's going to police this and what penalties will there be for non-compliance? In the first instance, there, there, I imagine there would be very little need for policing. You know, we we asked people to wear face coverings on public transport and there was huge compliance. We then made it mandatory, uh, partly to protect the, the staff, partly to protect the, the drivers. And there has been a very, very high level of compliance there. So there hasn't really been a need for the Gardaí to be involved. And the Gardaí are always a last port of call. The idea is not that the Gardaí would be actively involved in policing compliance in shops. I think most of us see when we go to shops, the vast majority of people are now wearing face coverings. Again, as an additional public health measure to suppress the virus, we're putting it on a statutory footing from Monday. My hope 
is that the vast majority of people will comply. Inevitably, some people will forget. You know, you walk into a you walk into a petrol station, you walk into a news agency, you forget to put you forget to put the mask on. We've all got to build it into our habits. So, in the same way as we we check we've our keys and we've our our phones, we now need to be checking that we've we've got a mask in our pocket. I envisage that there will be very very little need for the guardie. However. Uh, the the people in the shops and ultimately it is very much about their safety as well they will now be able to say to somebody who comes in look you know sorry to disturb you but you need to put a mask on uh, and if you don't have one would you mind just going back and getting one as a very last port of call the Gardaí can be called but the hope is that won't happen We heard from Mary Regan there that some members around the cabinet table yesterday felt the seriousness of the advice that came from Neffet isn't being fully conveyed is there a communications problem here are you um, managing the public expectations enough here? I hope we are. I hope we are. I think on communications you can never do enough. Uh, there has been a very successful communications campaign in place across radio, across social media, across the But are people the getting the message as to how serious it is? Oh, I think, we, I think people do get the message. Like more than 1,700 men and women have died in this country. More than 26,000 of us uh, have got this virus. And, and for those who survive the virus there can be long-term impacts i think people do i think we have been through this together everyone has sacrificed together we're all looking at the news we're all seeing the awful situations in other countries so yes i i think we do can we continue to communicate better and better and clearer and clearer absolutely we can and we must always endeavor to do more but i would be pretty comfortable that that everyone in this country understands just how serious this is and could i could i say sam just a just a finally a, a thank you to everybody because the reason we have kept the rates low and the reason that our fatality rates are not a lot higher than they are is because of the extraordinary solidarity that people have shown every time they go into the shops every time they put on a mask every nearly one and a half million people have downloaded the app the message from public health now is we need to focus on the basics wash our hands maintain social distancing just follow the basic public health advice and I just want to thank everyone for everything they've done Okay Minister for Health Stephen Donnelly thank you Let's return to Beirut where at least 145 people were killed as a result of Tuesday's explosion at the city's port. Over 5,000 injured, hundreds of thousands homeless and last night's protesters tried to gain entry to the parliament buildings but were stopped by tear gas firing police. This all followed a visit to Beirut yesterday by the French President Emmanuel Macron. In one heated exchange, he hugged a protester after listening to her pleas for an international investigation into the explosion. They have been manipulating us. Not a single president took us seriously since the day of the bomb. We are people that are still under the fire. They're still right now. It's either dead or alive. No one cares about us. Just us are standing together. You have to, Mr. President. You have to pressure them. Pressure them to take proper investigation. Hold those accountable for this entire mess and crisis. The people, we are all here ready to help. From entire Lebanon. From the south to the north to the mountain, we came to Beirut. Stand up as all Lebanese, all as one. You know why? This is your anger is yes. my source of optimism. No one cares about us. Someone must be accountable, cried that woman. Well, we are joined now by Belle True, who is Middle East correspondent with the UK Independent, who's in Beirut. And Belle, um, the searching for relatives goes on. It's such a desperate situation. Will you tell us about some of the people you've been talking to about their lost loved ones? 
Well, I was actually at the port yesterday, which is, of course, the epicentre of this horrific blast, standing with family members of port employees who are still missing. There's believed to be at least eight of them um, who were basically working right next to the epicentre of the blast, who are still unaccounted for. The family members there told me that the government has done little to support them. They're frustrated that the rescue efforts are taken uh, so so long in the port area, and they still held on to the hope that maybe their loved ones were buried under the rubble in underground storage um, areas where they may have taken cover. But unfortunately, obviously, as the hours and the days go by, the likelihood of finding anyone else alive is very, very slim. There have been some stories of survivors being found, including a, a little girl who was apparently dug up from under the rubble. But even those stories have turned um, into tragedies. We, we, we heard apparently of one port worker who was found yesterday, but I spoke to his brother and he said that he's still not able to locate um, his brother, who, who, who is not in any of the hospitals that he's been able to go to. And we heard Emmanuel Macron talking to that woman there in that clip, a very powerful clip and just desperation in the woman's voice. Is he, President Macron, linking reconstruction aid, which is needed on a huge scale from the international community for Lebanon? Is he linking that to political reform in the country? Yeah, I mean, this is a point that he actually made yesterday during um, his press conference that he would, of course, help mobilise aid to Lebanon, which you know is a country that was already suffering from a financial crisis before this blast hit, on the condition that 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 um, aid form sorry that reforms were made that, that this wouldn't end up just being kind of sucked into a kind of corrupt corruption basically. So he made it very clear that although he would definitely help Lebanon try and get uh, assistance, money, building materials, for example, that needs to happen as as long as the government ensured that there were some serious reforms he even called for an audit of the uh, Lebanon central bank so it's very clear and he made this very clear also to people he was speaking to in the streets that that you know the aid would not end up in corrupt hands and i think that's really the main plea from lebanese people here there's no uh, faith in the authorities and the lebanese authorities people are very concerned that any money that's poured into lebanon will just end up in the in the hands of um, what people here say is the ruling the corrupt ruling elites um, so I think, you know, President Macron did make that clear that he would try and ensure that reforms were pushed. OK, we leave it there for now, Bell. Thank you very much for joining us. Bell True, Middle East correspondent with the UK Independent, live from Beirut. It is just gone half past eight. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.